uh, we're in the middle of our Acts series. We're in Acts 13 this week, uh, Acts 13. I'm going to break from our, our uh, tradition, and I'm only going to read a few verses to you out of Acts 13, just the verses uh, that we focused on, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Uh, these are the verses that we're going to focus on. I'm going to read them to you out of the New King James Version. But before I do, um, I just want to say that the Lord wants to talk to us today about your decision-making process. How do you make decisions? How do you make major life decisions? How do you determine whether to turn to the left or to the right? How do you determine whether to take this job or that job? How do you determine whether to move to this place or to that place? How do you make major life-changing decisions? Do you simply weigh the pros and cons and try to make the best decision, the one that seems best to you? Do you lean on your own understanding? Is God even a part of the equation for your decision-making process? Uh, or do you make your decisions according to the leading and direction of the Lord? Um, as the Bible says, that those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Which means that if you're children of God, you have the right to be led by the Spirit of God. That is, you have access to the leading of the Spirit of God. And then the last question would be, if you were to make a decision today, that I, from now on I want to make all major life decisions according to the leading of the Lord, how would you go about doing that? How would you go about positioning yourself before the Lord in such a way as to clearly hear his voice and follow his leading? This passage of scripture provides us with a very clear and compelling set of answers to all of these questions. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit, that you'd open up each and every one of our hearts to hear the word to understand it, to believe it, and to bear fruit from it. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, this is Acts chapter 13. We're in Antioch now. Just a little bit of backtracking. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was in Jerusalem until Acts chapter 7, where this guy named Stephen was persecuted. It was not just a persecution. He was assassinated. He was stoned to death. And after the assassination of Stephen, a persecution broke out against all of the Greek-speaking Christians that were in Jerusalem, and they all scattered everywhere. They left. They had to leave town because there was a threat on their life and on their well-being. And they went in many different directions. We saw how uh, this guy, Philip, went down to Samaria and led a revival in Samaria and the whole town turned to the Lord. And then Peter and John went down to Samaria and prayed for them all, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So all of these Greek-speaking Christians who were driven out of Jerusalem, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They saw it as an opportunity for the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They saw their calamity as an opportunity for the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if we began to think that way? That every time something went wrong in my life, it was an, ex it was an opportunity for the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was an opportunity for God to get some glory in a place where he had not yet received 
the glory that is due his name, or for God to set people free in a place where people were in bondage. The, the Greek-speaking Christians who had, were scattered from Jerusalem, they saw their calamity as an opportunity for the gospel to expand. Now, some of them went to the city called Antioch, and in Antioch, they did a strange thing. Up until that time, it was believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ was primarily for Jews, and that if you were not a Jew, you could receive Christ, but first you had to be circumcised, and you had to keep the whole law. But these Greek-speaking Christians who went to Antioch, they started preaching the gospel out on the street to common people, to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, and people started to believe their message and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they started a, little, they started a church there in the city of Antioch. And it started to grow and grow, and multitudes of people started coming in and believing the message and receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And news got back to Jerusalem. These crazy Greek-speaking Christians are out in Antioch, out on the street, talking to non-Jews and preaching the gospel to them. And so the apostles said, that's strange. Is that, is that really okay? So they sent Barnabas out there to check it out and to figure out if this was God or not. Barnabas, you remember him. His name means son of encouragement, Bar Nabas. The, the apostles named him son of encouragement because he was the most encouraging guy that you could ever meet. Barnabas was an encourager to the bone. So he goes out to Antioch and he just kind of wants to just watch. He probably didn't even tell him he was there when he got there. They, they might not, well, they probably knew who he was. Uh, but Barnabas comes into the church and he's just sitting at the back and he's just watching. He's listening to the message being preached and he's listening to the worship and he's watching the people respond to the grace of God and he's sensing the presence of God there. And at the end of the service, they invite him up to kind of share what he feels and what he sees and what he senses. And he gets up and says, folks, this is God. God is doing something here. It's crazy. It says, when Barnabas saw the grace of God there, he encouraged the believers there. And so everybody was so encouraged, and he stayed there for a while, and he ministered to the church and encouraged the church and built up the church, and he saw that God was really doing a thing there that was real. And then Barnabas got thinking, you know what? These people, they need some more leadership here. They, they need, you know what they need? They need, like, somebody, like, I know who they need. That guy Saul of Tarsus. You remember that guy Saul of Tarsus back in Acts chapter 9? 14 years ago, he received Christ. Now, we've got to imagine that between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13, 14 years have gone by. Barnabas gets to Antioch and he remembers, 14 years ago, this guy Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus and he was going to imprison some believers and, and throw them in jail and he has this vision of the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. His life's completely changed. When he got back to Jerusalem, he tried to join himself to the church but they wouldn't receive him because they knew about his past. They wouldn't receive him because they knew what kind of life he used to live. You know, a lot of people feel like, if you only knew the life that I used to live, you wouldn't receive me here. But Barnabas, it was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, came alongside him and brought him to the church and said, look, we can't reject this guy because of the way he used to live. He's seen the Lord. He's had a real encounter with God, and God has changed his life. We need to receive him as a brother. And based on Barnabas's word, they received this guy, Saul of Tarsus, as a brother in Christ. Saul, he's also called Paul, the apostle Paul. His name was not changed from Saul to Paul. His name Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. And all throughout the book of Acts, when he's in a Hebrew context, they call him Saul. And when he's in a Greek context, they call him Paul. 
And so Barnabas thinks, I got to go get this guy, Paul, because I think this church would really benefit from his ministry. And so he goes all the way down to Tarsus and he starts searching for Paul. And when he finds him, he says, hey, bro, what you been up to? He said, man, not a whole lot. He says, really, for the last 14 years, what have you done? He said, man, not a whole lot. He said, but you're so powerful and you're so awesome and you're so anointed. He said, I know, but for some reason, my gifts don't work in Tarsus. For some reason, I've got the right gifts, but I'm not in the right place. And Barnabas said, you know what? I think I found the right place for you. I think I found the place where your gifts are going to work. And he takes him over to Antioch and he says, look, man, this is a fledgling church. This church is brand new, but God is really doing a tremendous work in this place. And so I just want you to serve here. I just want you to find out, is there any way you can serve this body? And and if there's any way that you can use your gifts to serve this body, I believe that they would be uh, all the better for it, as well as yourself. So Paul goes, you know what? I'm down. Let's go. So they go to the Antioch church. And Barnabas introduces them. He says, listen, you guys got to check this guy out. This dude met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He saw Jesus himself. He did not become a Christian because he heard a message and believed it. He became a Christian because he met the Lord and believed him. Like, this dude is the real deal. Like, you gotta, you got to listen to this dude. And so then Paul, he starts ministering in the church at Antioch. And they're like, man, this is awesome. And Paul became one of several prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. And now we get here to Acts chapter 13, and it names these prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. And when it says that they were prophets and teachers, it means that they knew what their gifts were. They knew what they could do. Now, a prophet is a person who has a unique ability to hear from God and to declare what God says. A prop, now, everybody, every believer in Jesus Christ can hear from God and can share what he says. But a prophet is a person who has a unique and heightened ability and responsibility to hear from God and to declare what God says. And so some of the people in this church were prophets. Now, others in the church were teachers. And what teachers have a unique ability to do is to take divine truth and break it down into bite-sized pieces. Teachers are able to take divine truths that might go right over your head, but they can break it down into bite-sized and digestible pieces that you can understand and apply to your life. So now you had this, this group of leaders in the church, half of them were prophets who had a unique ability to hear what God says and to speak it, and the other half were teachers who had a unique ability to hear divine truth and break it down into bite-sized pieces so that it could be understood. Now, that's a powerful team right there, right? I mean, that's a powerful ministry team that's ministering to a powerful church in Antioch. But the church came to a place where they weren't quite sure what was next. They came to a crossroads where they started to ask the question, yeah, but we know what we can do. We know what we're able to do, but God, what is it that you want us to do? You see, there's a difference between knowing what you can do and knowing what you're supposed to do. There's a difference between even knowing what you want to do and knowing what God wants you to do. There's a difference between knowing these are my gifts, these are my abilities, these are my talents, these are my passions, and knowing this is my calling. Meaning, this is what God wants me to do. Now, one of the great problems in our culture, even in the church, especially in the church, is that oftentimes there's very little desire to even find out what God wants me to do. Or very, even, even very little value 
for finding out what God would want me to do. Sometimes it's a lack of value. It's like, that's just not important. I just want to do, look, I want to receive Jesus and be a Christian and go to heaven when I die. But in this life, I want to figure out what I want to do, and I want to do what I want to do. That's one way to live your life. But if you live your life that way, you will find yourself at the end of your life wondering if you did the right thing or not. Wondering if your life was actually meaningful or not, you will be ultimately held hostage to your own desires. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we do not find meaning by fulfilling our own desires. That's why wealthy, famous, and influential people commit suicide all the time. They got everything they wanted, they did everything they wanted, and it was still bankrupt. At the end of the day, the only true meaning in life is discerning and fulfilling the will of God for your life. And when you come to the end of your life, my goal, my desire in life, my greatest desire is to come to the end of my life and to be able to say what Paul said at the end of his life. He said, I fought the good fight, I've kept, I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. What's the good fight? It's the fight that God has called me to fight. I finished the race. What's the race? The race that God put me in. And I've kept the faith. What's the faith? The things that God has asked me to believe for. And then he said, now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I don't know about you, but don't you want to hear that at the end of your life? Like, don't you want to be able to say that with confidence at the end of your life? Don't you want to to be at the end of your life and to be able to say, I've done it. I finished it. It's done. I'm finished it. That's what Jesus said on the cross before he gave up the ghost. It is finished. What is finished? Everything God put me here to do. Everything God wanted me to do, it's finished. It is the greatest. I mean, listen, you can die a happy person at the end of your life, fulfilled, ultimately fulfilled, with an intense sense of significance. If you can say at the end of your life, I did what God wanted me to do. That's crazy, right? That's crazy. So how did they get there? So the church, they came to this place, the church at Antioch, they came to this place where they said, we're at a crossroads. We know what we can do, but we don't necessarily know what God would have us to do. We know the directions that we can move in, but we're not necessarily sure which direction God would have us to move in. Now they begin a decision-making process. Now they have to determine How do we make the decision whether we go to the right, whether we go to the left, whether we go straight ahead, or whether we turn around and go backwards? How do we make that decision, not only corporately for the church, but individually for our lives? How do we make that decision? And the the decision that they made was that we're going to seek the face of God and we're going to pray until God gives us an answer. That is, they determined to seek the face of God, and to wait for his answer. And it says that they ministered to the Lord and they fasted. They ministered to the Lord and they fasted. Here was their strategy for discerning the will of God. Number one, we're going to minister to the Lord. And number two, we're going to fast. Sounds pretty simplistic, right? It's actually not as simple as it sounds. We're going to minister to the Lord, and we're going to fast. And they entered into an intensive and intentional season of ministering to the Lord. Now, that word minister there in the Greek 
It literally means to work at your own expense. When you minister, it means to work for another or on behalf of another at your own expense. It means it's a type of work that costs you something. The word also means to worship, which means that one definition of worship is to work at your own expense. Uh, you know, my daughter, for, my daughter got me a Christmas present, and um, she noticed that, um, you know, I take one blood pressure pill every night. I have for the last 10 plus years. And on top of the microwave, I've got this little, uh, what do you call those pill things where it says Sunday, Monday, Tuesday? Yeah, I have a pill box. Yeah, he was a pharmacist, so he is a pharmacist, so, so he knows. So I got this, this but it was, a, it was an old janky pill box. Because, you know, that's the kind of thing I would never think about spending money on. It's like, you know what I mean? I don't need a new one. It's a, this was an old, like, hoopty pill box, right? And my daughter saw how, how jacked up that thing was. And she was at Daiso, and she was shopping with Mommy. And she saw these pill boxes there. And she grabbed one and said, I'm buying this for Daddy. But here's what was crazy. She paid for it with her own allowance. She said, this I'm paying for myself. She wouldn't let my wife pay for it. That is, she ministered to me by serving me at her own expense, which meant that she first discerned what I desired or what I needed, what was on my heart, and then secondly, at her own expense, she made provision for that thing. That's what they did. It says they ministered to the Lord, which means in order to minister to anyone, you've got to give them your undivided attention so as to discern what they need and what would actually be a blessing to them and what would not be a blessing to them. You know, not all, not all service is ministry. You can serve people in a way that does not minister to them at all. There's a proverb that says, if you bless your brother in the, loudly in the middle of the night, it'll be taken as a curse. <laughs> right? It's like I go to Dyrell's house at 3 o'clock. Dyrell! Darrell! Darrell! I bless you, brother! I just want to bless you, brother! At 3 o'clock in the morning, he'll come to the window and say, what in tarnation? Says, brother, I didn't want to wait any. I just wanted to bless you! At 3 a.m., go bless somebody else. Go bless the bed. That's where you should be right now. There, there's a way, you know, if you, you can actually serve people in a way that does not correspond to their needs and their desires... And it actually is more of a curse than a blessing. We had a, we, we had a guy, this, this, uh, he was a young Bible college student. My wife and I used to bring him over and feed him and, and just pour into his life and encourage him. And he would always try to wash the dishes after we fed him. And the first time we were like, brother, no, you don't have to wash. No, 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 no. No, I really want to bless you. I want to wash the dishes. But he was so nervous that while he was washing dishes, he would act, the first time he did it, he accidentally threw a cup, a glass cup. <laughs> And glass shattered and broke everywhere. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're like, it's okay, brother. It's okay, brother. And so we're sweeping up the glass, and he's still washing dishes, and all of a sudden, he throws a plate. And it just breaks everywhere, you know? We're like, brother, brother, calm down. It's not that serious, you know? And so we brought him over again a couple weeks later, and he's, after we ate and we poured in his life, he's like, let me wash the dishes. We're like, no, 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 you don't need to wash the dishes. But you know what he did? You know what, he insisted, and he insisted to the point where we realized if we don't let him wash the dishes, we'll offend him. 
So we let him wash the dishes, and he broke a pot. He broke a glass uh, baking uh, a pan or a pot, whatever. He broke this like a casserole dish, shattered it everywhere. Every time he came over our house, we lost dishes. <laughs> Finally, we had to say, brother, you ain't washing no more dishes. We can't afford for you to wash <laughs> more dishes, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so in order to minister to someone, you've got to discern You've got to give them your undivided attention so that you can discern what would actually be a blessing to them. If you wanted to minister to my wife, you would massage her. But if you wanted to minister to my daughter, don't you dare massage her. She will feel that you are choking her or somehow trying to harm her, but you would tickle her. If you want to minister to my daughter, tickle her. You want to minister to my wife, massage her, but do not tickle my wife. Do not, no, for your own safety, do not <laughs> tickle my, she will not be ministered to and do not massage my daughter. The reason I know it is because I've given enough of my undivided attention to both of these individuals that I know what would be a blessing to them and what would not be a blessing to them. So to minister to the Lord means to give him your undivided attention until you know what his desire is. That is, to give God your undivided attention in worship and in prayer. Not for the purpose of getting something from God. So often when we do turn to the Lord in prayer, it's because we're trying to get something from God. Isn't it interesting? Watch this. Their desire was to find out what God would have them to do. But their strategy was to forget about their desire and to focus on God's desires. Their strategy was to minister to the Lord and, and once again, that word means to work at your own expense. That is, they entered into the work of worship. Worship was their work. Worship had become their work. This is the strategy for discerning God's will in order to make a major life decision. The strategy was to make worship their work. They said, if we want to discern God's will, we must enter into an extended time of worship and God will make it known to us, right? Worship, to think of worship as a form of work, that worship became their work. They wanted to know their work. And in order to discern, discern their work, they had to make worship their work. Meaning they got on their knees or whatever, whatever position they got into pray. They grabbed a guitar or a keyboard because they didn't have CDs and, and uh, MP3s and, you know, and they, they didn't have any recorded worship. So if they sang, somebody had to play. And they worshiped and they sought the face of God and they focused all of their attention on God. What do you want from us? What would you have us to do? Now watch this. It says they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And that, that word to fast means, of course, to abstain from food and drink. To abstain from food and drink. Which indicates that their ministering to the Lord lasted a long time. Because they fasted for as long as they were ministering to the Lord. Which means they, that, that worship time didn't last an hour. Or two hours. Can you imagine? You, I fasted for the last three hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's not called fasting unless it's longer than a day. It's at least a full day, which means these folks, they got on their knees and said, we're not getting up until we're done. Like, we're going to really seek the face of God intentionally. 
and it was an extended time. It, la- it probably lasted several days. This extended time of seeking the Lord and fasting. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, Now separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. Isn't it interesting that they were seeking to discern their work, but they made worship their work. I want to talk to you for a little bit this morning about what it would mean to make worship your work. What it would mean to make worship your work. Like, what would it mean, what would it take to develop a spiritual life in which there were no time constraints on your ability to seek the face of God? Like, what would it be, what would it be like to be the type of Christian that you could, like, get on your knees and pray and look up and six hours had gone by or a full day had gone by? Like, if we were to have an all-night prayer meeting, how long would you last? <laughs> you know, I was there all night, but I prayed for, like, all minute. <laughs> right? Like, what would it be? Remember, we used to have those all-night all prayer meetings. And we used to do them, at, when my wife and I lived in Emeryville, we used to do them at our apartment. It would just be a handful of, you know, 20, 30 people there. And uh, Joseph, you know, jo- Joseph would be trying, it would be 2 o'clock in the morning, and Joseph would be going, oh, I thank you, Lord. I thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, I thank you, Lord. Oh, I thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, I thank you. I thank Oh, I thank you, Lord. Oh, and he would do that just like over and over again. He's like, he was fighting sleep with all of his might. He's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna pray all night long. And invariably by about 3 a.m., he's just gone. He's just out of it. If you're like most of us, there are time constraints on your ability to seek the face of God. When you get on your knees at home to seek God, how long can you pray for before you feel like Nothing's happening here. That's the experience of most believers, right? It's like nothing's happening here. I don't feel nothing. I don't hear nothing. I don't see nothing. God's not saying nothing to me. I'm reading the Bible, but it's not speaking back to me. It's just I'm reading the, the you know, I'm reading it, you know. I'm trying to study it or meditate on it, but nothing seems to be happening for me. You know, most believers kind of live at that place for the rest of their lives, like their entire lives. But what would it mean to break through that place? into a place where when you get on your knees to pray, you actually are able to engage the presence of the Lord. I mean, you feel him engaging you, and you feel you engaging him. Like there's this give and take between you and God that happens to that during that time. That when you get up off of your knees, you actually feel that you have discerned the will of the Lord. Like you get up from your knees going, God spoke to me today. Like you open the words of Scripture, and as you read it, you feel that you're actually drawing divine life from the word of God. Like it's no longer an ancient text, but it's a living word to you, and it's living and breathing in your hearing. Like what would that be like? What would it take to get to that place of vibrant, life-giving, spirit-filled Christianity? That walk with God that's actually a walk with God because you're actually walking with God and every day you actually feel God drawing close to you and drawing you close to him. And when you step out of his heart, you feel it, that you're stepping out of his heart and you feel the spirit pulling you back in to the heart of God. What would it, what would it be like to get to that place? You know, I've, I've, got, I've got a little bit of an inkling of an understanding of that process over the last couple of weeks. Many of you know that I've been wrestling with my health uh, 
really for the last two and a half, three years, um, but intensely for the last six months, uh, you know, late October, early November, I was hospitalized and I had uh, vertigo, like really bad vertigo, and there was this inflammation of this nerve in my brain, and it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, a bad situation. And, and while I was there, my blood pressure was off the charts, like out of control. And that was the main thing. Like the vertigo, they can treat with meclizine and different things like that. But the, the heart, the, heart, the uh, blood pressure, if they don't get that under control, they can't send you home till they get that under control. And they were giving me all kinds of blood pressure medicine, and it wouldn't, my blood pressure just wouldn't come back down. And finally, they sent me home. They did the best they could, but it, did, it still didn't come back down into the normal range. Um, and then in January, I went back to the hospital. This time, it was just a really bad stomach flu. They called it gastroenteritis. And the pain, it felt like somebody stabbed me in the stomach, pushed the knife out my back. And my chest was on fire from all of the intense vomiting. You know, it was just like a really bad. But once again, when I got to the ER and they hooked me up to the blood pressure machine, my blood pressure was off the charts. It was like 186 over 132. I mean, it was like crazy. When, it, when I was there in November, it was 250 over 186. So, yeah, I mean, that's like, how did you not have a heart attack and die? Like, how did you not die? So after both of these experiences, I, I walked away feeling like, all right, I've survived two of these major you know, things, I might not survive a third. Like, I need to get my health in order. There's a place in your life where you realize you need to make a change. Like, I need to make a change. But did I make a change? No. (laughs) I mean, I would be eating chocolate chip cookies going, I need to make a change. Got to get it in order as soon as I finish this cookie. I'm going to make a change. And then I'd go for the ice cream. And, you know, (laughs) I, you know, the best I could do is, you know, when you open the ice cream and there's ice cream stuck to the lid, I would toss that. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's my sacrifice. I'd eat the rest of it, but I, <laughs> I would toss, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, whatever calories were in that, I saved it. But here was my crisis. I need to make a change, but I can't make a change. I need to go to the gym. I need to go to the gym. I need to go, I need to go work out. I need to go work out. I send, I, I send 24-hour fitness a monthly love offering. I say, you, you guys are doing such a wonderful work. I just want to support your ministry. I don't actually use your facilities. I'm just sending you a love offering. And I have for, I've sent them that faithfully for more than a year now. But in my heart, I'm like, yeah, I got to get over there to the gym. I got to make a change. I got to make a change. But I couldn't find the discipline to make a change. Why? Because working out is hard. And the, see, here's the thing. Like I wake up in the morning. So I should go work out now. But I'm too hungry. I need to eat first. Okay, then I eat. I should go, to, go work out now. Now I'm too full. <laughs> it's like I would have to be at this perfect place between hunger and fullness, you know, where, you know, you let the food di- digest just like a certain amount of time and, Okay, now I could work out. The problem is I'm always busy during that, that moment. And then I would like secretly sabotage myself. Like I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to take my daughter to school and then I'm going to go right down the hill to the gym and I'm going to work out. But then I would get my daughter to school and realize I didn't put on any socks this morning. I can't work out with no socks. Oh, well, I might as well go eat a bagel <laughs> and a cup of coffee <laughs> filled with cream and sugar. 
And I was, I was gaining all of this weight and it was getting out of control. But here's the prayer I was praying. Lord, will you help me? Like, will you help me? Because I can't, I can't seem to make a change in this area of my life. Will you please help me? Will you please give me the discipline I need? You know, a lot of us, we feel that way when it comes to prayer. It's like, I know I need, if you ask, if you get a hundred believers in the room and ask, do you think you should probably pray a little bit more than you do? A hundred of them will go, yep. Not a single one will go, nope, I pray, I pray, I pray plenty. I pray enough. <laughs> like every single one of us, we feel like, man, if I could just spend more time with God, we know that we should, we know it would do us good, we know that something would change, but here's the problem. Going to work now, what I didn't understand is that my diet, what I was eating, was actually making it, comp make, when you eat a bunch of sugar, like when you eat a bunch of really sugary and like, I mean, I would, I, would, I used to, my favorite meal, one of my favorite breakfasts was a cinnamon raisin bagel, toasted, covered with butter on both sides, and then a bunch of cream cheese, and then I pour honey over the cream cheese. And then I make a big tall cup of the blackest coffee I could make. And, and I would fill it with that French vanilla creamer that's just loaded down with sugar. So I'd make it like super black so it's like super strong. And then I'd make it super sweet and creamy. And it's like, no, it's not creamy enough. And then I'd pour, it's not strong enough. And so there had to be this, you know, and then I would drink that big thing of coffee. And I would eat that cinnamon raisin bagel. Now, all of that sugar that I'm putting in my system, do you know what it's like to go to the gym and work out when you got all of that junk in your system? Your body feels sluggish, you know? You're in the gym like, I got to work out. But it's a horrible experience. It feels like this is not doing any good. And you know it's not doing any good because of what you just ate. You just ate like 2,000 calories for breakfast. And you are, you're on the treadmill and it says you burned 186 calories. <laughs> Isn't that just demoralizing? So I was asking the Lord, you got to help me because I can't change myself. I need you to help me. That was the only prayer that I could pray. God, help me. Help me to want to do this. Give me the discipline to do this. I can't find the discipline. I don't have the power. I can't do it, Captain, you know? It's like, like help me, God. And a couple things happened. The first thing that happened was um, two weeks ago on Wednesday night, my wife was telling me, do you know how high your blood pressure actually went when you were in the hospital? I was like, yeah, it was like 186 over 132. She goes, no, 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 no. It went way higher than that, but they didn't show you because they were afraid you'd actually have a heart attack if you saw how high your blood pressure went. I said, what was it? She said, it was like 250 over 186. And I was like, oh, snap. I came closer to death than I knew I had come. So that was sobering moment number one. That was Wednesday night. Then I wake up Thursday morning, and I'm thinking, man, I really got to make a change while I'm brewing my coffee. And toasting my bagel. I really got to make a change. And I pour myself this, this giant mug of coffee. And then I'm pouring in the French vanilla creamer. And my phone rings. And it's my friend David. And I answer the phone. I say, hello? He goes, Benjamin, I got to tell you something. I said, what? He goes, dude, I'm not trying to freak you out. But I had a dream last night that you died. I was like, what? 
He said, Benjamin, in my dream, you and I were talking and laughing and having a good time. And in the next moment, I walked away and ran into another one of our friends. And that friend said, did you hear what just happened to Benjamin? And I said, no, what happened to Benjamin? And he said, he just had a heart attack or a stroke. And he died. And he said, we fell into each other's arms, me and that friend. And we just wept and wept and wept and said, no, 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 this can't be real. This can't be true. This can't be true. And he said, I just kept thinking, I've got to wake up. David, wake up. He said, I was telling myself, David, wake up. Wake up. This is a dream. This isn't real. This can't be real. And he said, and I woke up. I just woke up. He says, Benjamin, I don't know what's going on with your health, but you need to take care of it right now. You need to take care of it right now. And I went, <laughs> I took that cup of coffee and poured it right into the sink. And I started keto that moment. And I went to the doctor that morning and got my blood pressure checked and my pulse and all of that and scheduled a physical for the following week. And when in the following week, I went, I went, I was like, take my blood. I want to know what's going on in my blood. And they took, they did all the blood tests and I went in and got the physical and I sat down with my doctor. I said, you're not leaving the room till we talk through this. Because <laughs> you know how they want to get you in and out. It's like, my, my chest is hurting. And they just go, no, you're fine. I'll see you later. You know how they just like to put, say, you ain't putting me out. We're going to talk about this. I'm going to live. And suddenly, guess what happened? All of a sudden, when I started eating right, one day of eating right, I felt like, I need to go to the gym. <laughs> and I went to the gym, and I worked out for like an hour. And guess what? It's not that it wasn't hard. It was hard, especially when you haven't worked out in years. In the beginning, and here's the hard thing, it feels like nothing is happening. No, never do you go work out and go home and go, man, I lost 28 pounds. Look at that. <laughs> man, look at this six-pack. <laughs> but there was just this overwhelming sense, this is right. This is what I should be doing. And if I keep doing this, I'm going to be okay. In fact, if I keep doing this, I'm going to be more than okay. So last week I went to the gym four times and I've, I've been, this is my 11th day on keto and I lost 11 pounds so far. But you know what? That's cool. But the question is, can I maintain this? Can I keep going? Can I not stop? By the way, if you ever see me from this day forward, if you see me eating something I shouldn't eat, you have full permission to slap me right in my face. <laughs> Just slap me and say you will live and not die. <laughs> but here's the key. The reason oftentimes believers have a terrible time in prayer, you feel like nothing's happened, it's often because of your diet, your spiritual diet. I mean, what are you putting in your spirit? What are, you putting, what are you putting into your spirit? Like, what are you watching on TV? What, what are you watching on YouTube? Like, what are you putting in your spirit? What types of conversations are you having, having with people? What, what kind of words are coming out of your mouth? What kind of thoughts are you meditating on day and night? Your diet, that's what you're letting in your system. You, you let all this nasty stuff in your system, and then you get on your knees to pray and expect the heavens to open and hear from God. 
It's like eating a, eating a, a gallon of ice cream and then saying, I'm going to go to the gym now and expecting to have a wonderful time on the treadmill. You're going to puke and have diarrhea at the same time. It's when you put the diet and the exercise together that real transformation begins. When you put the diet and the exercise together. And that was the combination of ministering to the Lord and fasting. Meaning while we're ministering to the Lord, we're not going to put all this nasty stuff in our system that's going to weight us down and bloat us up and cause us to feel all spiritually sluggish and we can't walk with God because I've been putting all this spiritual sugar and ice cream and stuff in my system that weights me down so that I can't even follow God. Matter of fact, I'm so bloated and, and so sluggish with all this stuff in my system, I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to talk to God. I don't even feel like opening my Bible. Of course you don't feel like opening your Bible after four hours of Netflix and YouTube. It's the combination of your diet and your exercise. But here's the key. The key is the motivation. Where do I get the motivation from to seek the face of God? And the only answer to that question is you got to ask for it. You got to ask God for it. God, would you give me the motivation to seek you? Would you give me the motivation to change my life? You got to get a vision for what you want. And you know, I tell you what, keto is hard. And I gave up coffee too, by the way. I'm not doing coffee. I'm not doing sugar. I'm not doing rice. I'm not doing bread. I'm not doing pasta. I'm not doing all of the things that used to bring me joy. <laughs> and now I'm eating bowls of chicken soup, chicken and vegetable soup. Last night I had beef soup, you know. <laughs> I know it sounds terrible, but it's actually wonderful. When, I, when I'm eating the food, it's actually wonderful. But when I'm looking at the food other people are eating, That is, at a certain point, you begin to envy the wicked. You know what I'm talking about? When everybody around you is eating pizza and you're like, man, that pizza looks so good. And you start envying the wicked. When you see all of your friends around you living a lifestyle, it's like, man, that looks so much fun. Man, they had so much fun at the club last night. Man, I wish I could throw down a few hennies. <laughs> what gives you the motivation to move forward is the vision of what your life is going to look like if you stay the course. The vision. I'm tired of my wife telling me I'm obese. If I stay the course... <laughs> She's going to look at me one day and go, mm. see, that's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> and that pizza is going to mess that up. And so when I get the vision of what my life is going to look like where I don't have to take blood pressure medication anymore, when I get the vision of what it will look like to wake up in the morning and want to work out and say, I can't wait to get to the gym. 
Yesterday, I went to the gym, and for the first time, I had that experience. It was hard getting there. Don't get me wrong. It's still hard getting there. I'm like, I got to go to the gym today. I got to go to the gym. But I still am fighting this thing inside going, you don't want to go to the gym. You're too tired. Just stay home and relax. But I, got to, I went to the gym. But once I started working out, something turned on on the inside of me. And after, I only had an hour, but at the end of that hour when I had to go, I was like, ooh, if only I could stay another 30 minutes. Wouldn't it be awesome to spend time with God and know that you only have an hour, but to get up at the end of that hour and go, if I just had 30 more minutes to worship him. If I just had 30 more minutes in his presence. Man, if I could have just spent 30 more minutes with this passage of scripture, I think God could have given me another level of, like, like that longing kicks in. When that desire and that longing kicks in, then it's no longer obligation. Now it's love. It's no longer obligation. Now it's delight. And that's the place where, where all of a sudden everything in the world fades away and it's just you and God. Where you begin to seek the face of God and now that real transformation begins to happen in your life because you've tapped into the place of love. It's hard to get to that place though. Can you imagine if I just kind of went to the gym, it's like I'm going to the gym and I just kind of walk around the gym. (laughs) Wow, he's working out hard. Man, he's sweating. He ain't got to do all that. He's doing too much over here. You could actually just walk around the gym and just make fun of the people that you see in the gym. You know? Like, does she see that yellow stripe up her butt? Like, why is she wearing that? You know what I mean? Might as well put a sign that says, look here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, is he over there? Look at this guy screaming, got 30-pound dumbbells. Ah! 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 I mean, you could just walk walk around the gym and just make fun of people the whole time you're there and then leave. He said, man, I spent an hour and a half at the gym today. Didn't do nothing for you. That's like going to church and just looking around during the worship service. Man, look at him crying and all that junk. Ain't nobody doing too much. Just need to calm down. Look at her shaking over there, falling out, jumping up and down. The song don't sound that good. The band don't sound that good anyway. Why she always got to lift her hands and cry? Like every Sunday you got to (laughs) cry? You can go to church and just kind of stand around and then walk away and go, I was in church for two hours, but you didn't engage. You never got on a treadmill. You never actually did the work of becoming a worshiper. You see, being a worshiper is hard work. And at the end of the day, if you want the direction of God for your life, you must do the work of becoming a worshiper. And in fact, you must make being a worshiper your primary work. My number one job is to worship God. And every other job flows out of that as they focused heart and soul on, I'm going to worship, we're going to worship God. We're going to give him our undivided attention. We're going to engage him. We're not just going to walk around the gym. We're going to get on the machines. We're going to get on the treadmills and we're going to run. We're going to, we're going to press. We're going to push. We're going to exert ourselves. You know what happened? The Holy Spirit began to move upon them. And the presence of God began to stir their hearts. The Holy Spirit longs to pour out his life. But he will not do it upon the casual observer. 
The Holy Spirit longs to pour out his life, but he will not fall upon the casual observer. God longs to reveal the depths of truth that reside in the scriptures, but he does not reveal them to the casual observer. If you want what the Spirit of God has to offer, you've got to learn how to get out your pick and shovel and go to work. And if you would make worship your work, the Spirit of God will speak. And it was in the midst of worship that the Spirit of God spoke and said, okay, now I'm going to give you direction. Separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And they take Paul and Barnabas aside and they begin to pray over them. And it says they fasted and prayed over them. God said, separate Paul and Barnabas. Okay, Paul and Barnabas, it's about you. The Holy Spirit, the word of the Holy Spirit is about, is about you. And so they began to pray and fast over Bar Barnabas and Paul. They got in a circle around them. And they prayed and fasted, not for 10 minutes, maybe for 10 hours, maybe for 10 days. Who knows how long it was until they had clarity what the Holy Spirit was calling Paul and Barnabas to do. And then they laid hands on them. And at the end of that prayer meeting, Paul and Barnabas knew what they were called to do. And you know what came out of that prayer meeting? What came out of that prayer meeting were all of Paul's missionary journeys that takes us everything that happens from that day through the end of the book of Acts all came out of that one prayer meeting. All of it. You know what came out of that prayer meeting? Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Corinth. All the Philippi. All of the churches that Paul planted, all of the ministry, and all of the, 12, the, the 16 letters that he wrote to the churches, it all flowed out of that one prayer meeting where the people of God set their hearts aside and said, we're going to seek God, and we're going to make worship our work. And because we make worship our work, we're going to worship until God speaks. Today, I urge you, I implore you to make a decision to do the work of becoming a worshiper. To do the work of becoming a worshiper. To make a decision. I'm going to get to that, to get, to get that vision in your heart and mind. I'm going to be that kind of a believer who seeks the face of God, who engages the presence of God, who draws divine life out of the word of God. I'm going to be that kind of a believer, not just that kind of a believer, that kind of a human being, that kind of a person who walks with God and who makes decisions according to the direction of the Holy Spirit and where he leads me, I will follow. And if you make the decision to do the work of becoming a worshiper, I guarantee you, I don't guarantee you it's not, that it's not going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Just like going to the gym is hard and eating right is hard. But what's harder is coming to the end of your life and realizing that you wasted so much of it chasing after your own desires and leaning on your own understanding. If you do the work of becoming a worshiper, you'll come to the end of your life and it'll be filled with meaning and significance because you know that you set your heart above all things on doing the will of God. Bow your heads, let's pray.
Precious Heavenly Father, I just speak your blessing over each and every one of these sons and daughters of yours. Sons that you've destined for glory. Sons that you've set apart for your kingdom and for your righteousness. Sons and daughters that you have called by your name. Lord, you have so much more for us. You desire so much for us. But Father, all that you're waiting for is our willingness. Lord, there's some in this place this morning whose hearts are burning with desire. God, would you make me a worshiper? Would you give me the will? Would you give me the motivation? Would you help me with my diet and my exercise? Would you help me and put a guard over my eyes so that I don't let things into my eyes that are going to weight me down in my spirit? Would you help me and put a guard over my ears so that I don't allow things into my ears that are going to weight me down? And would you motivate me? Would you activate my soul to seek your face, to seek you and you alone, to seek you and find you when I search for you with all of my heart? And would you meet me with your presence? Holy Spirit, I pray for the sign of freedom to get today. Even as Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may worship. Lord, the sign that we have been set free is that we become worshipers. And the sign that we are in bondage is that we can't worship. But God, I pray that even in our bondage that you would wake us, wake us up and say, If you would lift your eyes to me, I'll set you free today. If you would lift up your eyes and lift up your hearts, I'll set you free today. I'll give you the freedom that you need, the freedom you desire. And Lord, help us to value the freedom to worship above every freedom. Above every freedom would be the freedom to worship, the freedom to seek your face, the freedom to run after you. God, break us free today, God. Break us free today. Break us free in Jesus' name. And if your heart, if your heart, just resonates with that today. I want you to.